0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a conviction in the state Supreme Court in Manhattan that found the Trump Organization guilty in a tax fraud scheme in a verdict that was a blistering rebuke of the former president's company that fostered crime in what was described as, quote, a culture of fraud and deception. Joining us is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year-old veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has covered so many tax dodgers that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. Also, the founder of DCReport.org. His latest book is The Big Cheat. How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Then we'll look into today's runoff election in Georgia, which has intense national media attention, and examine the runoff election itself, which is all about diluting the power of the black vote, and the runoff's history, having been created in 1964 by an avowed segregationist, Denmark Gruver. Joining us is Charles Bullock. Chair in Political Science and Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 30 books, including most recently, Redistricting, The Most Political Activity in America, The New Politics of the Old South, Georgia Politics in a State of Change, and Runoff Elections in the United States, co-authored with Locke Johnston. Then finally we'll investigate the mysterious attacks on our electrical infrastructure starting with an incident in California in 2013 where highly professional sabotage was carried out on fibre optic cables and two electrical substations that to this day remain unsolved. Joining us to discuss who might be behind Saturday's sabotage of electrical substations in rural North Carolina is Dr. Paul Sullivan who teaches courses on energy and environmental security at Johns Hopkins and is a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council. His research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the Energy Industry Study, taught industry analytics, economics of national security, and economic warfare. He's also taught at Georgetown, the American University in Cairo, and at Yale. And joining us now is David K. Johnson, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. He has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. And he is also the co-founder of DCReport.org. And his latest book is The Big Cheat How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnston.
1: Well, glad to be with you again, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, David. And apropos of your latest book, The Big Cheat How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, I've often said that this is a man who's been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his professional business life as well as his political life. And today it looks as if at least he got pulled over a little or a lot. How much do you think he got pulled over by the verdict uh, today in New York?
1: So the jury in New York City, uh, Manhattan actually, uh, convicted the Trump organization on all counts of tax fraud and related crimes. Now, that's not Donald Trump personally, except for this. The Trump Organization is 100 percent owned by Donald Trump, and nothing has ever gone on at the Trump Organization without Donald's approval. Nobody had authority to do anything, um, right down to back uh, when Donald Trump cashed checks for 13 cents because his staff was afraid if they threw out a check for 13 cents, it was a prank by Spy Magazine. Uh, you know, they'd get fired by him. So this is this is a very important development. You can now say without any fear whatsoever, Donald Trump oversaw calculated years of calculated intentional tax cheating. And now that this is this Rubicon has been crossed, I think, Ian, we're going to see some of the prosecutors who were uh, spineless and fearful that uh, if they prosecuted Donald Trump, he they wouldn't get convictions. I think they're going to grow some spine now. Um, Alvin Bragg, the District Attorney of at Manhattan, killed the racketeering case against Donald. But I was flabbergasted when he did that. But he now has revived a tax investigation of Trump and. Uh, There's no reason he shouldn't be able to get a conviction on tax charges based on what happened with the organization. The company you own and you run, which has a very tiny little staff, um, uh, was engaged in years of systematic tax cheating, and you've tweeted the things Trump has. Everybody does this, and this is politically motivated. has nothing to do with anything but political motivation. shouldn't be hard to get a jury to convict Donald Trump of being a a, a tax cheat.
0: But I think we spoke about Bragg dropping that case with two really seasoned prosecutors, and they literally fought the case to get the Mazars tax returns on Deutsche Bank, et and, you And know, the predecessor to Bragg, of course, Cyrus Vance Jr., had worked the case. Pomerance recently was on a podcast where he speculated maybe when I briefed Bragg I didn't do the best job, or it was too complicated, or I didn't get it. But at the time it happened, there was a sense that, you know, my God, could Bragg have been bought off or whatever? So just taking on the tax part of it, and I believe he's hired a new prosecutor from the DOJ who's apparently very experienced. So the RICO case, that couldn't be revived? Is that the situation? Well, the
1: New York State has something called the Little Rico Law. It's patterned on the federal Rico, Rico law that a uh, uh, prosecutor and later law professor named uh, Robert Blakely uh, came up with the idea of and got Congress to adopt. RiCO is a law designed to take an organization that appears to be a legitimate business, but is really just cover for criminal activity. And to pursue it. And we think of it in terms of of mafia figures, but it's an organized crime law. And Donald Trump, I've said many times, is the third generation head of a four generation white collar crime family uh, whose crimes go back to the 19th century. And it's is it could they revive the RICO case? Probably not, because they've sent a lot of the evidence back to the people whom they got it from under subpoena. Uh, the Mazers firm, what they wanted from the Mazers firm want the tax returns. Manhattan prosecutors can get the state tax returns of Trump by just asking for them. And New York state and federal tax returns are virtually identical except for retirement income. Uh, New York doesn't uh, tax you on Social Security and on uh, per person $20,000 a year of, of pensions or IRA money. Otherwise, they're identical. And they might bring that back, but I think at this point uh, that's not likely. Uh, but there, are, Donald Trump's committed so many crimes uh, over the years. You know, he his casinos, uh, uh, and I named them in my first book, Temple's a Chance, uh, which came out 30 years ago. His casinos solicited as gamblers children who were 12, 13, and 14 years old because they had money. He gave them liquor limousines, hotel suites. One kid got a credit line, though that may have been at a competing casino. And he, 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 the only known case of cheating gamblers in Atlantic City was at one of Trump's casinos, the Trump Castle. He's cheated workers and um, investors and uh, Trump University, uh, quote-unquote, students. Uh, Donald Trump's just a, a one-man crime wave, but he's never been gone after Because, Ian, we don't seriously pursue white-collar crime in America. And the best proof of that is the 160 million tax returns filed each year in round numbers. Last year, there were roughly 500 people convicted of a federal tax crime, and almost all of them were drug dealers, politicians who took bribes, or business people who gave bribes to politicians. We don't we don't look for this kind of crime. We don't prosecute it. And the way our white collar crime laws are written, it's difficult to get convictions without an enormous expenditure of prosecutorial investigative effort. But I think now we're going to see that Donald's got more problems. He's going to be indicted by the federal government over the 13,000 pages of classified documents that he took that are at Mar-a-Lago that were taken at Mar-a-Lago. And we don't know what he has still to this day at uh, Trump Tower and at his Bedminster golf course. But he has made public statements suggesting that he has documents in those places. Um, The new prosecutor in the case, Jack Smith, who's a no-nonsense guy, he's already issued subpoenas to the sheriff in Dane County, Washington, and elections officials in Michigan and other people all over the country. Uh, and they're moving at a very rapid pace to build a case and indict Trump uh, on a federal level, finally, after almost two years.
0: So given that he's still <laughs> hasn't coughed up all of the classified documents he stole, if you're in counterintelligence, uh, you would have to write off all of the secrets that he's had access to because you just don't know in terms of chain of custody whether or not right. other people have had them. So I, at I the end of the day, no this this he guy could end notes. up costing the United States taxpayer billions and billions of dollars, couldn't he, if classified programs have been compromised?
1: Not not only could he cost us money, there's very good reason to think that he's endangered the lives of both American undercover agents and foreign Leaders or bureaucrats or staffers or military people who are secretly feeding us information, and that should be the, the that's that's a real danger we need to worry about. And then secondly, imagine uh, Ian that you are the Australian chief of intelligence. Uh, I pick Australia because it's America's most loyal lapdog ally, more than Canada, more than Britain. Australia is always there saying, "What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do?" you're going to be really, really cautious about sharing intelligence with the U.S., knowing that Donald Trump was able to walk away with all these documents. It's going to make you say, Gee, I don't know if I want to share something with these people. Um, and, of course, we don't know whether Donald monetized any of this. Um, I wrote a column right after the raid at Mar-a-Lago, at D.C. report, saying, you know, look, Donald doesn't know what anything about what intelligence is. Remember, this is a man who had to be told that Finland is an independent country and that uh, why there's a memorial uh, atop the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. Uh, and if you're that ignorant, obviously you're, you don't have any sophisticated understanding of intelligence. Um, but what he does know is the monetary value of those things. I mean, imagine what the Saudis would pay to know about the military capabilities of Israel or of Iran. And we know these documents were left around, uh, unlocked, according to documents the U.S. government has filed, when there were agents of foreign governments roaming around Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is, this is a, a real, very serious uh, problem. And it comes, it shouldn't surprise us that he did this, because remember in May of 17, when he'd only been president for a few weeks, Donald Trump had a what was intended to be an unannounced meeting in the Oval Office with Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of the uh, Russian Federation, and Sergei Kislyak, a well-trained spy who's, who was the ambassador to the U.S., and we only know about it because the Russians announced this, and we found out right afterwards that Trump gave secret information to the Russians. He gave them what's called methods and sources, sources and methods. How did we find this out and, and, and wh- who, who, who supplied it to us? Uh, that, that you know, caused immediate responses around the world. There were articles that appeared within a week in uh, newspapers uh, in uh, the Netherlands, Australia, England, uh, France, Germany, Israel, uh, where clearly intelligence officials told journalists in those countries, and eh, we're not so sure we're going to tell the U.S. much, if anything, so long as this guy's in the White House. Because right. of what he just did, we can't trust him.
0: Right, it was the and, Israeli secrets that he compromises. It happened.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, and and understand, Donald has no idea about this stuff. He he's a, he he never did a day of public service before he took the oath of office. Not one, not as a volunteer on a committee, a blue ribbon panel of citizens or anything. Nothing. Yeah. He knows nothing of these matters. But I, I think the future for Donald is. Uh, uh, criminal prosecution and civil litigation that's just going to go on and on and on. And he's going to get crazier and crazier as it goes. I mean, he just tweeted this thing a couple of days ago that we should terminate the Constitution to put him back in office. And then he turns around when he sees the blowback from it and says, I never wrote that. <laughs> really? You know, I'm sorry. It's right there in black and white.
0: Right, right. But just to follow up, though, we're on Pomerantz, the prosecutor who was resigned in protest, along with his, right. the other prosecutor's name I can't quite remember, but uh, he Mark, was also, Mark,
1: Mark, Mark Mark Pomerantz uh, yeah. was the leading expert in the in the world on Rico, and Kerry Dunn, who was a yeah. long time, very senior prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office.
0: Right. So Pomerantz has recently did a podcast where he talked about what happened when Bragg decided not to continue the prosecution and he sort of tried to figure out what he'd done wrong, although it sounds mostly like Bragg himself, uh, for whatever reasons, said that he didn't didn't think he could win the case, whereas Pomerantz and the other prosecutors say they could have won the case. Will we ever know what the strength of that case is? Because you've told us that they're basically not going to pursue that anymore. They're just going to pursue the tax case, which, of course, would be buttressed by the decision today in the court in Manhattan.
1: No. I, I knowing as much as I do about Donald and how he operates, he fits the racketeering law. In New York, if anybody wants to look up, it's Penal Law 480. And I, I don't know how they could lose such a case. Um, but, uh, you know, Pomerantz is a, 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 a Boy Scout. He's uh, trying to say, well, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I didn't uh, uh, carefully enough explain to the Alvin Bragg. Uh, what I was doing. um, But the burden is on Alvin Bragg. He's the elected DA. He's the one who decided to pull the pin. And both Pomerantz and Dunn, a career prosecutor in that office, resigned as a matter of principle. I think that suggests that the, the the weight of the evidence, imperfect as it is, is that Alvin Bragg lacked the spine to do this. He was afraid Well, what if we do indict him and then a jury doesn't convict him? Well, guess what? That happens now and then. Um, You know, when you hear a prosecutor who says, I get 98 percent convictions, I'll tell you what you should be thinking. Wow. How many criminals did you not prosecute because you might have lost the case and you went after the slam dunk convictions instead?
0: Well, you mentioned a little while back, uh, David K. Johnson, that. You thought Trump's going to get crazy and crazier. Yeah. And that's really, really saying something. We haven't had a reaction yet from the verdict today against the Trump organization, having been found guilty of a tax fraud scheme. But presumably, that, along with what we are talking about earlier with Jack Smith, this pretty zealous prosecutor looking into the Mar a Lago documents as well as the January 6th insurrection he has more and more reason to be paranoid as the law closes in on him. How's that going to affect his base, do you think? He said some time back that I could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and get away with it, and boy, has he proved that to be true. Even after that outrageous statement he made uh, a couple of days ago that he would terminate the Constitution, there was barely a a murmur from Republicans. So he still owns the GOP, and he's got these spineless uh, GOP so-called moderates absolutely terrified of him and and yeah ian this is a real
1: tragedy here Uh, on january 6th we saw who donald trump was he tried to overthrow our government and both mitch mcconnell and kevin mccarthy said essentially that that day and the next day and then they then they they lost their their spine it wasn't made of anything substantial if, if those two leaders had said, we are done with Donald Trump, and had said to other senators who were more willing to speak out, Mitt Romney, for example, go after this guy. We are done with him. We wouldn't be going through all of this stuff. But they, 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 they were more worried about their own office holding and careers than about this country. And I find that deeply offensive. Over a million people died for this country. I'm the son of a 100% disabled veteran of World War II whose life was ruined by that war. And for someone to put their getting reelected to office ahead of their oath of office, that's despicable. It is, to use Hillary Clinton's word, deplorable. And we didn't need to go through this last two years. Now, as for his followers, he's going to have people or and people who aren't even born yet who are going to say he was the greatest president ever and he was railroaded and da-da-da-da-da, because there are always people who believe things like that. But his, his uh, base is going to be shrinking. D.C. Reports sent student journalists to three different Trump rallies with instructions to not just look at the stage, but look around the room. And what they found was that the same people were coming to these rallies. They interviewed people who, oh, yeah, I just travel around the country and go to Donald Trump rallies. And we go in our RV or we fly out there if they have the resources. And he never allowed cameras to shoot the back of the room, which was empty. There was nobody there. He wanted to create the impression of a big audience that wasn't there. Donald, and I've known Donald for 34 years. Donald is an empty vessel. Thank God you're not Donald Trump. A miserable, hollow person who's never known joy, has never known love, uh, has no empathy and an ability to interact with other people, and who's constantly trying to fill this emptiness inside with public adulation. And that's going to diminish. Now, the Democrats should be happy that Donald Trump is around at the moment because I see three scenarios coming up. Donald's running for president if he gets the Republican nomination, there's no way he wins uh, at all. Not, no chance based on what we saw in the 2020, 2022 midterm elections. If he doesn't get the nomination, he probably will then announce he's running as an independent. Well, guess what? The Democrats can run anybody and they win because it'll split the Republican vote. The third possibility is, Donald realizes he's going to be labeled a loser, and so he says the whole system is corrupt. Don't go to the polls. Don't vote. Well, who benefits from that? The Democrats. I mean, Donald has created something the Democrats aren't entitled to, but they're going to be the beneficiaries of
0: by being Donald. Hmm. Well, David K. Johnson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much at the last minute and with this breaking news that the Trump organization has been found guilty in a tax fraud scheme. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into today's runoff election in Georgia and the history of the runoff elections themselves, which is all about diluting the power of the black vote. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at Backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Bullock, Chair in Political Science and Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 30 books, including most recently, Redistricting, The Most Political Activity in America, The New Politics of the Old South, Georgia Politics in a State of Change, and Runoff Elections in the United States, co-authored with Locke Johnson. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles. Bullock.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us on this election day in Georgia, where the eyes of the nation are are upon um, this important runoff election. Of course, the news that's just breaking now that the Trump organization has been found guilty of in a tax fraud scheme is probably distracting people, but a lot's at stake, clearly, particularly for the Democrats. But let's talk about the history of runoff elections in Georgia, which is sort of a relic of of Jim Crow, is it not? I mean, it seems as if the runoff elections themselves are about diluting the power of black votes, and the history of these runoff elections are such that they were created in 1964 by an avowed segregationist, Denmark Groover. So you've written about Denmark Groover, so fill us in on the history, if you would, Charles.
3: Yeah, and there's some debate over uh, exactly what role Denny Gruber played. He did propose a runoff bill in 1963, and to figure out why we had to do that, because actually runoffs have been something in Georgia history goes all the way back to the 1890s, uh, when it was first adopted as a state party rule, and then about 20 years later it got enacted as, uh, into the uh, legislature. But an important part of Georgia's uh, political history was, we used to have what's called a county unit system. which was kind of like a poor man's electoral college. That was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1962. So there was a major rewrite of Georgia's election code in 64. And there's some debate over exactly what role Danny Gruber played in that. It was uh, part of uh, litigation in the early 1990s. And the trial court, as well as the Court of Appeals in Atlanta, concluded that the runoffs had neither the intent nor the result of discrimination.
0: Well, the article that you quoted in, in the Washington Post, Georgia's runoff system was created to dilute black voting power. One of the other experts that was quoted is Stephen Lawson, Professor Emeritus of History at Rutgers University, and he described the runoff system as, in terms of, quote, the creativity of white Southern politicians for over 100 years in figuring out ways to first keep black people from voting and then trying to make it as difficult and as burdensome as they can without it appearing racist and a violation of the Constitution is breathtaking. So is he correct in suggesting that this runoff process that's happening now is an extension of that kind of activity?
3: Yeah, that's very pretty, pretty, pretty much of an overstatement. Now, what does happen with runoffs is it does make it more difficult for a minority group in a particular jurisdiction, whether it be white or black, to be able to uh, to win with just a plurality. And so we can point to other examples in which a runoff would have, would have helped minorities. And that would be in a situation where the minority vote would be the predominant vote.
0: But in this case, obviously, if you didn't have the runoff election, already Reverend Warnock would be re-elected, right? That's true. He
3: he, he would have been elected. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And who is being disadvantaged in this case, apart from the fact that there's obviously voting fatigue in in the state of Georgia, an enormous <laughs> <Right>. amount, enormous <laughs> amount of money is being spent. Right. Airwaves yeah. are blanketed, right?
3: That's right. It's easy to point to who the winners are, and those are the television stations, which have raked in tremendous amounts of money in having this, uh, this second round of elections. Uh, but yeah, had uh, we not had this, uh, this runoff requirement, then uh, Reverend Warnock would have been elected. But had we not had it in place two years ago, Don uh, Ossoff, the Democrat, would have lost, because in that case, David Perdue polled a plurality, came with about 12,000 votes of being able to get a majority.
0: So, given that uh, you mentioned David Perdue, they changed the election laws. Well, in 1964, the state legislator changed the threshold for a runoff requiring a candidate to earn at least 45% of votes instead of 50%, which would have meant Warnock would have won already. But then the Republicans changed that back in 2008 because of a, a loss of a race right, and that effort was led by then Governor Sonny Perdue, whose cousin David Perdue you just mentioned lost the 2021
3: 20, runoff, right? Right, it's- really ironic there, yeah. Yeah, in, in 1992, which was the first time we'd ever had a general election runoff, and in that year, Democratic incumbent Senator White Fowler led by about 30,000 votes. And then in the runoff, he loses to the Republican, Paul Coverdale, about 16000 So Democrats trying to manipulate the system at that point, roll back that threshold just for Senate contests, not for anything else, back to 45%. And sure enough, in 1996, another Democrat runs for the Senate, has a plurality, doesn't quite get the majority, and nonetheless didn't need a majority, so he goes to the Senate. So Republicans looked at that and said, in essence, we think the Democrats stole one from us. So when Demo- Republicans become the majority in the state, they change the rules, and sure enough, it trips up David Perdue, a Republican.
0: So the system then that Denmark-Gruber started in 64, at least had a lot to do with, it came, it came in just before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then in 1990, it came under scrutiny from the Justice Department and the ACLU, who had sued Georgia over the runoffs, right. and in a court deposition, Denmark Gruver told federal investigators that, quote, I was a segregationist, I was a country unit man, but if you mm-hmm. want to establish if I was racially prejudiced, I was. If you want to establish that some of my political activity was racially motivated, it was. That's pretty clear and unequivocal, isn't it, Charles?
3: Well, it is, right, and that's exactly what he testified to. Uh, the state's witnesses, and that was the governor at that time, back in the 60s, a man named Carl Sanders, who was, for his time, a racially progressive. Uh, and also the man who was the Speaker of the House at that time testified that uh, Gruber, while he did favor runoffs, had no impact on the drafting of the legislation, that he had supported the opposing candidate for governor, and therefore he was on the outs with the uh, the powers that be at that point. And the court accepted... Uh, uh, the testimony of those two uh, leaders of the state in place of uh, Gruber when it came to trying to figure out what the motivations were.
0: Well, just in closing then, let's talk mm-hmm. about the 2021 law that was passed uh, by Georgia Republicans. And, of course, Brad Raffensperger became quite famous for resisting Trump's efforts to find uh, enough votes, just one more than he needed to win. We all heard that on tape. But... I think it's called uh, SB202, is that what it's called?
3: That's correct, SB202, exactly right.
0: Yeah. Right. Is it really in the spirit or in the continuity of, of what we're talking about here? Because there's been a lot of complaints from Democrats, particularly over the short voting window for early voting, etc. Is it as bad as a lot of Democrats say it is? Oh...
3: Yeah, I guess it remains to be seen. Now, uh, one could certainly point at it and say, well, we did not see an increase in participation in 2022 over the turnout in 2018. And A lot of expectation was those numbers would go up. And someone might say, yeah, because there was no increase in total participation this year, uh, maybe two, 202 had its impact. Uh, we had lots of people who voted early in person. Uh, but where we saw a drop-off was in voting absentee, and it did become more difficult to vote absentee. You had to go through a couple of extra hoops to do that. And so that's where it most likely probably had its impact because you know that then also reduced, that legislation reduced the number of drop boxes. Uh, so that would have also made it a bit more difficult to register your preference if you wanted to vote absentee. But we saw fewer people even request because of the extra steps you had to go through to get an absentee ballot.
0: Well, Charles Bullock, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My
3: pleasure speaking
0: with you. Bye. Bye bye. And again I've been speaking with Charles Bullock, who's Chair of Political Science and Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. He's the author, co author, editor of more than thirty books, including most recently Redistricting The Most Political Activity in America, The New Politics of the Old South, Georgia Politics in a State of Change, and Runoff Elections in the United States, co authored with Locke Johnson. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the mysterious attacks on our electrical infrastructure, starting with the incident in California in 2013, which still remains unsolved, and to Saturday's sabotage of an electric substation in rural North Carolina. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Paul Sullivan, who teaches courses on energy and environmental security at Johns Hopkins and is a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council where his research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the Energy Industry Study, taught industry analytics, economics, and national security, and elective and regional studies related to the Middle East, North Africa region, the Islamic world, economic warfare, and other issues. He's also taught at Georgetown and the American University in Cairo and at Yale. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Paul Sullivan.
4: Yes, good day. Good day to your listeners.
0: Well, thank you, Paul. And what do you make of the... I mean, there's infrastructure wars going on, particularly in Ukraine, where Russia is trying to destroy the infrastructure so that the Ukrainians will have an incredibly cold winter and presumably uh, cry uncle although that's not likely to happen, but the destruction is relentless. So that's going on. But then we have, obviously on a much smaller scale, attacks on infrastructure here in the United States, uh, particularly in the North Carolina, and there have been previous attacks on infrastructure, rather mysterious attacks in April of 2013, just outside of San Jose, California, where two electrical substations were attacked. Fiber optic cables were cut and sniper fire disabled. The substations very targeted, still unsolved. Now you have a similar thing happening in North Carolina and it's got people quite puzzled. So what do you make of this domestic terrorism? But who knows whether it has foreign fingerprints on it?
4: It's hard to tell. uh, First investigations have to face the fog of war and the fog of potential terrorism. We have our own homegrown terrorists. Uh, They are becoming much more well-known and more numerous. And also, there's no rule that says uh, terrorists, domestic and foreign, cannot take electrical engineering classes or learn how to do this. And there may be actually electricians involved in these things. But the attack on the Metcalf. uh, Center in 2013, uh, was clearly done with trained snipers. They knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, I haven't seen the data yet on how good these guys were in North Carolina, but it turns out that they damaged more people's ability to get to electricity than the California one in 2013. Uh, Another concern I have about this is that there could be copycats watching this, Our energy systems in the world, be it Ukraine, be it in Europe, uh, be it in Japan, be it in the United States, anywhere, is more vulnerable, or they are more vulnerable than most people realize. All it takes is someone with bad intent and a high-powered rifle, and you could put people out of lights for days, if not weeks sometimes. Of course, if you have weapon systems like the Russians have, you can essentially kill people by shutting off their electricity because they rely so much on electricity. For other sources of fuel too, you cannot get gas uh, from a a gas station without electricity. Uh, We used to have hand pumps to take it out way back in the, let's say 40s and even into the 50s in the rural areas, but certainly they don't exist now. You can't get cash out of ATMs. Hospitals are put at risk. Uh, Schools have to shut down. Uh, food will rot in supermarkets. If this was a malicious, malignant uh, event by a bunch of teenagers, I would be surprised. It just looks too good, too well-practiced, too well-planned for it to be that. The question is, why would anyone do this? And they haven't said who they are. It makes no sense. Well, the
0: only leads or clues or suspects, I guess, in this Moore County attack in North Carolina on Saturday was that there were plans to hold a drag show at the Sunrise Theatre in the town of Southern Pines, and that apparently attracted the ire of a number of militia groups, and particularly the opposition was organized by a woman called Emily Grace Rainey, who's a former U.S. Army psychological operations officer, who apparently was in the attack on the Capitol on January the 6th of 2021 so she has organized this group called Moore County Citizens for Freedom and after the lights went out on Saturday she took to social media to say I know why the electricity went out and then she wrote that she was investigated by the sheriff's office who visited her and she claims that they wasted their time in doing so and God works, she said to them, God works in mysterious ways and is responsible for the outage. So I used the opportunity to tell them, this is according to an article at the, the Daily Beast who interviewed her, I used the opportunity to tell them about the immoral drag show and the blasphemy screamed by its supporters. God is chastising Moore County. I thank them for coming and wish them a good night. So... That doesn't say she did it, but she, <laughs> she seems to be uh, at least sympathetic to the idea that God struck the sodomites and took out the power station. So,
4: Well, I have no comment on whether God was involved or not. That's well beyond my pay grade to put it in a very uh, simple way. But uh, anyone who... Uh, It thinks that putting the lights out for 30,000 citizens, older people during a cold part of the year, uh, children, people who need uh, medical devices that require electricity, hospitals, schools, first responders, and all that, that's immoral as well. But I'm not going to talk about relative morality because I don't want to get into that. But still, let's focus on the electricity uh, not on the behavior of others. Uh, the, uh, at attacking electricity is a danger to anyone who uses that electricity and needs that electricity. If more and more of these things happen looking into the future, it may uh, behoove us in some parts of the country, and maybe the country as a whole and maybe a better part of the world, to have microgrids that can de-link from the overall grid, and uh, that way protect them when one part of the grid goes down. Developing smart grids could also uh, militate against this kind of behavior. Uh, I I don't understand some of these extremists. Uh, I don't know how they think. Uh, She didn't say that she did it, uh, and that doesn't say much to me about finding the proof. I would leave it up to the FBI, the police and other investigators Department of Homeland Security, and others who don't know how to investigate these things. Uh, when such events occur and any kind of uh, malicious event occurs, you're always going to get the uh, wingnuts calling in uh, saying, this is the reason, or I was part of it, and so forth. It's very important, particularly now, because this seems to be connected with the Metcalf attack in some way, at least uh, intellectually, in a way. Uh, My intuition says there's some kind of weird connection here. Uh, We're going to have to find a solution to protect our electricity networks better, to protect our people against these malicious attacks. The separation of peoples in this country have caused this sort of attack to be more likely successful. If there were stronger communities, People observing what's going on. You know, if you see something, say something. How many people take that seriously outside of of places that have actually had significant terrorism? Not many. They just move on with their lives. They watch Monday and Thursday night football. Uh, They watch the, the, the kids' football games and so forth. And then they move on. But now they realize that their supermarket is not going to have fresh food and the meat's going to go bad and the milk's going to go bad. And they're going to have uh, problems with supply chains. And some people may have lost their jobs because of this. No kidding. If a factory that was already on the edge and was losing money for a long time, and in this inflationary environment, there's a pretty good chance for that, being out of work for a week could take them under. I find this just incredibly socially, nationally, economically immoral. And I think a lot of the people listening to this would agree with that. I'm sure
0: they would, and uh, nobody wants to be victims of this kind of vandalism, if that's an adequate term. But when you talk about the Metcalf, California, incident in April of 2013, just outside of San Jose, it still remains unsolved. Uh, It did have absolute professionalism. There were no fingerprints on the shell casings that were left behind, etc. So you know, immediately you think maybe it was a trained foreign actor. But I or guess it they're... could be a,
4: a trained domestic actor, too. Right. So a, a somebody with military people. training, you mean. Yeah, yeah. That clearly the people at Metcalf had military training. Mm-hmm. When you are able to, at long distances with a sniper rifle, and that's how I understand how they did this, shoot the wires down to the core of the wire coming out of the blocks, that takes a lot of skill. And also they would have to have had practice somewhere. So someone was watching these guys. Someone knew that this was a possible event. Uh, Unless they went into the woods in North Carolina this time and started shooting up trees and all that. And there's a lot of open space there. But terrorism that is domestic in this country is an increasing threat. Most people think of outsiders as the most likely threat. I think after... Uh, the attack on uh, the Hill, on on Congress, on the Senate, people talking about hanging the vice president. Uh, This country has to get a handle on what its own terrorists are bringing to them and their risks. My first thoughts on the, the North Carolina attack is it's more than likely a domestic terror event. I doubt it's just teenagers. Uh, This is just too good. It's too planned. I don't mean good meaning uh, a decent good Mm. meaning they planned this thing out. They knew what to hit And it's going to take a long time to get some of the machinery that they damaged A lot of this stuff we don't even make in our own country The biggest vulnerabilities of our electricity system are not in the generating stations It's in the transmission lines and the transformers and the switching stations and these things are not well protected, and they really can't be well protected because there are just so many of them. I and mean, they're right wide open. You can go to your local town, your local city, wherever, uh, go to a mall area. You can find some of these electricity infrastructure zones, and you can see the weaknesses right in front of you. It's scary. It's absolutely scary. And either we start protecting this stuff better, we figure out different electricity networks. We're at the time now of energy transformation. This might be the time to focus on this. But Ian, the big question here is, do we have the money to do it? Take a look at the debt this country holds. Mm. Where did that money go to? A lot of that debt comes from Social Security and Medicare and all this, but we were on forever wars that sort of ended. I'm not so sure those are over yet. And, And we could have used that money to invest in our own infrastructure in our own people, our own education. And also one of the results of these wars, I'm going to be very frank about this, is that they have changed our society. Violence has become the norm. In many ways, and a lot of the people involved in this kind of violence are actually those that were part of the war. I'm not saying they're all that way. There are many good people. I taught the military. I was involved in the military for over two decades, but some people just snap. They become resentful. I would not be surprised if there was a small group of very well-trained military folks involved with this, much like I am convinced that's what happened in San Francisco, or rather San Jose in 2013. But,
0: but Paul, why didn't they take—if it's domestic terrorism, why don't they take credit for it? That's why— You're suspicious about it. Nobody taking credit for the 2013 attack in California suggests that maybe it was a signal from a foreign actor. But normally, domestic terrorist groups want to promote themselves. Any terrorist group wants to promote themselves.
4: Maybe, but I've thought about this too since 2013. And I'm thinking about this with regard to North Carolina too. Maybe this was a probing action by either foreign actors or domestic actors, and the more they say they were involved, the more they're going to be under the the microscope. They'll keep probing, keep pushing, keep attacking. If no one's looking at them, then they can plan better. They can improve what they want to get done. If so, then their leadership, however many people there might be, are very clever. And if this is a foreign actor, they're Quietude is also a sign of uh, demonic, can I say, cleverness. Especially for the uh, regular American folks that are, are suffering under this stuff. Now imagine if this happens in the middle of a blizzard. If this happens in New York City. You know, uh, that Superstorm Sandy turned the lights on, but in many ways it's easier to fix things after a storm that it is after an attack uh, because you're probably gonna have the backup material and you can get people from all over the place. My guess is right now there are electricians and linemen and all that heading to North Carolina from all over the country to help these folks out. Uh, There's one thing, sorry folks, uh, not sorry, I'm not sorry at all by saying it. The next time you see a lineman fixing the pole because your lights were out, whatever reason that might be, recently in my house it was a crow that landed on a fuse. Thank them, these people keep us safe, keep the lights on, keep the hospitals working, and keep the supermarkets open and so forth. These are excru- these are heroes
0: well, just in the last couple of minutes, you mentioned uh, the the amount of money that the u s we well, didn't mention the amount of money that the u s wasted in its misadventures in Iraq and Afghanistan between six and ten trillion dollars is a is apparently the tab. That in itself, and you said the money could have been better used here to improve and harden our infrastructure. But just to circle back, though, on these unsolved mysteries, was the cyber attack on the water treatment plant in Florida, uh, I think it was last year, was that ever solved? There was also an attack in uh, New Jersey as well.
4: In New Jersey, the investigation seemed to have pointed to the Iranians, which is kind of weird. Uh, this was uh, part of the water system that brings water down from the Catskills to New York City. Uh, one thing that I teach my students, and I've been doing this for decades, is uh, before you get into what critical infrastructure is, you really don't understand how vulnerable it is. But it's a systems within systems connected with systems. And if you hit the right nodes... You could make the water go out. You could make the fuel go out. You could mess up uh, first responders, the people who protect you, communications. Uh, This is the sort of thing we should focus more on, not arguing with each other about issues that do not affect all of us. And I know that's kind of walking on thin ice, But more than likely, there will be more attacks like this, and we have to be prepared. Uh, And uh, part of that preparation, unfortunately, is to be prepared for having the lights out for extended time periods. We have an electricity system that is old. It's a dumb grid. It doesn't fix itself. There are ways of making smart grids that are self-healing. We don't have the money. We have the expertise. And what is most of the real? What are most of the really smart people in this country doing? Are they lawyers? They're finance people, and things like that. Are they working on uh, critical infrastructure? Are they working to make people safe? We have to change our energy, our education system, to and our, in a way, if we can do this with incentives, our economic system to incentivize younger people in particular to go into fields that are involved with these critical infrastructures. And these critical infrastructures are all interconnected. Sure. Fewer lawyers and
0: more engineers. But just in closing, Paul, there is no domestic terrorism statutes in this country. We have all kinds of laws against al-Qaeda and other foreign actors, but we don't. And, And do you think that's something that needs to be done, that we need to literally have statutes about domestic terrorism?
4: Well, the FBI and others have uh, responsibilities to protect the U.S. against such events. I think if it gets to the point where we have to have special uh, laws for domestic terrorism, uh, that means we're heading into a very dark period in our lives. There are some laws that do apply to that. Uh, I think the length of time that it's taken uh, for the people who attacked the Capitol building to be brought to trial uh, and to be imprisoned is astonishing. It's a signal to anyone who is thinking about doing something similar that maybe the pain isn't that much. What you have to do is make these folks think that whatever they do will cost them a lot. And uh, Part of the problem with criminality and terrorism is often they don't think it through. They have to think this through. They have to be made to think this through. Part of it is an education. Part of it is uh, surveillance and punishment. I know that sounds rather harsh, but I don't want domestic terrorism to become any worse. It seems to be that some people In this country including some in leadership position want to fire up domestic terrorists they will regret it they will regret it so much because it's sometime they're going to be tied to it and that could be very costly to them and to their followers it's time for the country to become one again and work as one country united we stand divided we fall And we can't let the terrorists, domestic or international, harm us and harm our culture enough that it is no longer viable. And folks, that's a possibility given the trends we're looking at now.
0: Well, Dr. Paul Sullivan, I
4: thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Sullivan, who teaches courses on energy and environmental security at Johns Hopkins and is a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, where his research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the Energy Industry Study, taught industry analytics, economics of national security, and elective and regional studies related to the Middle East, North Africa region, the Islamic world, economic warfare and other issues. He also taught at Georgetown and the American University in Cairo and at Yale. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.